Bibles, I invite you to turn with me again in them to the Old Testament book of Job. Job chapter 19. If you're a guest with us today, we've been working through this Old Testament book, the oldest book in our Bibles. And I want to just give a brief recap because we're in this section of the book where we can really get lost if we're not careful. And so uh, we began looking at Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 where uh, heaven is opened up and we see behind the curtain and we see the reasons for all of Job's suffering. And then in Job chapter 3, we find Job secluded outside of the city, sitting on an ash heap with his friends, scraping boils all over his body, lamenting and crying out of the pain and the suffering that he's experiencing. Then the middle section of the book is composed of three rounds of speeches and arguments between Job and his three friends. And for the last few weeks, we've been working our way through round one from chapter four to chapter 14. Today, we're looking at the second round of speeches from chapter 15 to chapter 21. And we're going to read one of the most famous passages in the book of Job this morning as our launching point in Job chapter 19. And we'll begin reading in verse 23. And this is what the Bible says. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. It has been said that a person can live three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food, but not one second without hope. And as we come to this section in the book of Job, we find Job at a point in his life where he has lost all hope that he could ever escape the pain of his suffering except through death. He had lost confidence that he would ever be vindicated by God. And he was resolved that he would die in pain as a condemned man suffering under God's hand of judgment. In fact, Job felt so hopeless that he believed that there was no, absolutely nothing he could do to change his situation. He had lost his will to live, and he was ready to give up. Under the assault of the words of his friends and suffering the pain of his adversity, in the midst of his hopelessness, in this second round of speeches, Job's personal faith in God is renewed. In chapters 15 to 21, we find Job, in the midst of his hopelessness, turning his attention once again to God. It was his deep conviction about God, whom he believed he would see on the last day, that gave him hope in the midst of his hopelessness. And Job teaches all of us this morning in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our pain that with God there is hope for the hopeless. So look with me, if you will, in chapter 15. And the first thing that I want you to see this morning is Job's friends in the midst of his hopelessness. In this second round of speeches, 
all three of Job's friends will speak to him again. And what we will find is that they have absolutely nothing new to add to the conversation. And so in chapter 15, we are introduced once again to Eliphaz. And in the first round of speeches, Eliphaz displayed the most kindness towards Job. But as he began his second response to Job, his compassion was replaced with cruel, calculated, and cutting words. Eliphaz, as you'll see, lets his pride get in the way of his counsel. And now he is more concerned about proving himself right and proving Job wrong than he is in understanding the truth and offering compassion and sympathy to his friend. In Job chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, Eliphaz accuses Job of being full of wind and speaking irreverently of God. He tells Job that his words are empty and foolish and that they are literally nothing but a bunch of hot air. Look with me beginning in chapter 15. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind, Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and you are hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. And Eliphaz is telling Job that The blasphemous words that he has spoken in his last speech really reveal his inward corruption and his sinful words have testified against himself and they've even brought condemnation on him. But the height of Eliphaz's accusation is found in verse 4 of chapter 15 where he charges Job of doing away with the fear of God. According to Eliphaz, Job's posture towards God and his desire to put God on trial were evidence that Job no longer feared God and his words were condemning him. Then in chapter 15, verses 7 to 13, Eliphaz, in a series of eight rhetorical questions, rebukes Job for thinking that he had more wisdom and insight than both God and his friends. Look at what he says to Job, beginning in verse 7. Are you the first man who was born, or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you, or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away, and why do your eyes flash, that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? And all these charges... That Eliphaz is making towards Job in these verses that we just read were not true. At no point in this debate does Job ever claim to have, ta- have obtained more wisdom than his friends and more wisdom than God. And the irony in all of these questions that Eliphaz hurls at Job is found in verse 12 when he says, Why does your heart carry you away and why do your eyes flash? And what he's asking Job is, Job, why can't you in the midst of your suffering and pain get control of yourself and get control of your emotions and your feelings? Your feelings and your emotions, Job, are out of control and they're running all over you. And can't you see the irony if you've been following along? Who's really out of control in these debates? Is it Job or is it Eliphaz, Bildad, 
and Zophar. And then in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 15, Eliphaz accuses Job of being unholy and morally corrupt. And here in these verses, Eliphaz understands and teaches the doctrine of human depravity that all of us are born with a sinful nature and separated from God. But you'll notice that when he teaches this doctrine of human depravity in verses 14 to 16, he only makes application to Job. He does not apply it to himself. And he tells Job that if God doesn't even trust his holy angels, and if the heavens aren't pure in his sight, then how can a corrupt man like Job, who drinks evil like he drinks water, claim he is innocent? That's what Eliphaz says to him. And then from verses 17 to 35 in chapter 15, Eliphaz once again appeals to his own experience and to the wise men of old to explain the reason for Job's suffering. And he tells Job, Job, if you reject my counsel, if you reject my experience, you are rejecting the wisdom of the ages. Look at what he says in verses 17 to 19. I will show you. Hear me, and what I have seen, I will declare. What wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. Job, I've got the wisdom. And Job, I've got the experience. And what you need to do, Job, is just listen to me and do what I tell you to do. And then in verses 20 to 24, he describes the suffering that comes upon the wicked. He says in verse 20 that they are, they writhe in pain and trouble piles up for them. In verse 21, he says that they're terrified by the prospect that they'll lose everything. In verse 22, he says they feel they're engulfed in utter darkness. In verse 23, they're left to wonder for their food. And in verse 24, they're full of distress and anguish and terror. And Eliphaz is beginning to make application on all of these truths about how the wicked suffer to the life of Job. And that's no more easily seen than in verse 31 of chapter 15. In this verse, Eliphaz tells Job that by relying on himself in the midst of his suffering, he's only trusting in what is empty and worthless. And in the end, he will deceive himself because his life will come to a tragic end. And so he says in verse 31, Let the wicked not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. Job You're arguing your innocence, Job. You're trusting in yourself, Job. And all your friends and God know that you're wicked and you're not innocent. And you're just deceiving yourself, Job. And you're prolonging the inevitable. Your wickedness is going to catch up to you, Job. And you will be punished forever. And then as he ends his second speech in verses 34 and 35, He reminds Job of what he argued from the very beginning. Job, you are going to reap what you sow. And you need to look no further than an example of this truth than what happened to your children, your animals, and your servants. Because the wicked always conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Look in verses 34 and 35. For the company of the godless is barren. You've lost everything, Job. And fire consumes the tents of bribery. And Job, you're wicked, just like all these people I've been describing. Verse 35. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. Job, you are a wicked man. And you're going to experience the same devastation that I've described 
in these 35 verses. I have just one simple question for you this morning regarding Eliphaz. How comforted would you feel by this chapter of words? Turn in your Bibles with me to chapter 18. In chapter 18, we see Job's second friend, Bildad, and his response to Job. Bildad has come to the conclusion that since Job is suffering, he has to be a wicked man. Notice the theme? Eliphaz's conclusion, Job, you're wicked. Bildad's conclusion, Job, you're wicked. And Bildad believes he's tried to help Job understand that if he would just confess his sin, God would remove his suffering and restore him. But Job knows that he can't confess sin because he hasn't done anything wrong to deserve this suffering. So he and Bildad are at a stalemate. And since Bildad believed that Job was wicked, he also believed, like Eliphaz, that Job would experience the darkness and the despair of the death of the wicked. So in chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, Bildad's anger boils over on Job. And he tells Job, you are just full of mindless, babbling, disrespectful words and a prideful attitude. And in chapter 18 and verse 2, Bildad wants to know if Job will ever stop talking and listen to the sage advice of his friends. Look at verse 2. How long, Job, will you hunt for words? Consider or be quiet and then we will speak. And then in verse 3 of chapter 18, Bildad accuses Job of treating his friends like dumb cattle instead of like the wise men that they really are. Look, I'm not making this up. Verse 3, why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight, Job? And then sarcastically in verse 4, Bildad wonders if God is supposed to rearrange the world for Job while Job continues to destroy himself by refusing to confess his sin. And he says, you who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? Job, should God turn heaven and earth upside down just for you? Are you that special, Job? That's what he's saying to him. And then in the remainder of this chapter, Bildad just pounds home the familiar theme, the doom of the wicked, the hopelessness of the man without God. He says in verses 5 and 6 that the wicked are like a candle. They're suddenly extinguished. The light of their life goes out and they're left disoriented and full of despair and in complete darkness. And then he says that they're without strength. They're trapped by their own deceitful plans. They're unable to escape punishment and death. They're surrounded by the terror of their fate. And their terror seems to be chasing after them in verses 7 to 15. And then in the remainder of the chapter in verses 16 to 21, Bildad says the wicked are like a withered up tree. They're cut off from the source of life in God. They're headed for destruction. The memory of the wicked perishes from the earth and they do not leave behind a good influence. The wicked have no heirs, no lasting legacy, only the testimony of shame and pain. They die alone without any family. They spend eternity in complete darkness. The only positive influence that the wicked leave behind is the warning that those who follow their paths will expect the same end of their life as the wicked. And then he tells Job at the end, what a horrific ending to a useless, wasted, wicked life. And look at what he says at the very end of this speech in verse 21. Job, you don't even know God. Do you see it? Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. This is you, Job. You don't even know God. Bildad is convinced that Job is going to die the death of the wicked. 
Now listen, this is only speech too. Can't you see how his friends have contributed to his hopelessness? Now turn with me to chapter 20. And in chapter 20, we find the last friend, Zophar. Now remember from last week, Zophar is the most brutal of all of Job's friends. And he attacks Job with a zeal that is really hard to fathom. But fortunately for Job, and fortunately for us, chapter 20 is the last time we will hear from Zophar. He fades off the scene of the book, and we can be thankful for that. One commentator describes Zophar's speech in chapter 20 as cold, cruel, and heartless. He's so angry with Job that he doesn't even care about Job's pain. In fact, Zophar believed that unless Job confessed his sin and repented, he would experience the same disastrous, devastating death of the wicked that Bildad just described in chapter 18. Now, Zophar is offended by all of Job's words in all of his speeches. And in chapter 20, he feels compelled to respond to Job. Job has insulted him and his friends. He feels disrespected and his thoughts are boiling over inside of him. He says in chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 that Job's words were so strong against him that he has no choice but to respond to Job. Do you see what he says? Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste or my anger within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. I'm compelled to respond to you, Job. There's no way I'm going to let you get away with the words that you have spoken. And then in chapter 20, verses 4 to 11, Zophar builds on the argument of Bildad and Eliphaz that the wicked will perish before their time arguing that the life of the wicked is brief. It's an eternal principle, Job. Everyone knows it. Why don't you understand it? You're wicked, Job, and your life is brief. It's flying past you. You need to confess and you need to repent. And we see in chapter 20 that all of these statements are generic, but in reality, Zophar is using them as a personal attack on Job. He summarizes his argument in verse number 5 of chapter 20 when he tells Job that the celebration of the wicked is brief and their joy is only for a moment. He says that the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment. According to Zophar, the higher a person climbs in their success, the farther they'll fall in judgment in verse number 6. In verse number 7, he describes the wicked's demise as refuse that is going down a drain. In verse number 8, he says the wicked are like a dream that cannot be remembered. And then in verse number 10, he says the punishment is not final when death comes. For when the wicked die, the children of the wicked have to sell off all of their inheritance and pay back all of the evil deeds that the wicked Man has done. And then in verse number 11, he says the wicked will die young and their bones will lie lifeless in the dust. In verses 12 to 19, Zophar describes how the wicked enjoy their wickedness. That it's like tasting something that's delicious and they don't want to swallow it because they want to keep it on their taste buds. But sooner or later, they have to swallow it. And what tasted so sweet, once they swallow it, becomes evil in their stomach. And it makes their stomach upset and it turns to poison and becomes like the venom of a snake. That's what he says wickedness and sin does. And can I just pause for a moment and tell you that Zophar is right? 
that that's exactly what sin does to you? That it tastes great in the moment, but once you drink it down and swallow it, it turns to poison? And its consequences are bitter. He goes on at the end of the chapter to tell Job that the wicked will vomit up the riches that they've gained through all the immoral practices of their life, that they'll not be able to take any of the fruit of their wickedness with them into their death and into eternity. And friends, I would say to you once again that Zophar is right on this point. You will not take anything with you when you die. And he concludes his speech verses 20 to 29 by presenting a startling vision of judgment that will fall upon the wicked. He says in verses 20 to 21 that the wicked's prosperity will not endure. He says in verses 22 to 23 that God's wrath will overtake them when they least expect it. In verses 24 and 25, they'll be overcome with terror as they face divine judgment. In verse 26, utter darkness will consume them and their treasure. In verse 27, their guilt will be exposed. And in verses 28 and 29, God will pour out his wrath like an overwhelming flood. And look how he ends his speech in verse 29. Job, this is the wicked man's portion from God. It's the heritage decreed for him by God. Job, this is your portion. This is your heritage, and it's coming from God. And the reason why this is your portion and your heritage, Job, is because you're wicked. And all you can expect from God is for his divine justice to fall upon you just the way I've described, just the way Bildad has described, and just the way Eliphaz has described. Do you see the theme from all three friends? You're wicked, Job, and God is judging you for your wickedness. So what are we to think about this? These are difficult chapters, very difficult chapters to understand and make sense of. So how, how do we process this? Well, once again, I have a few thoughts to help us. I'm sure you're surprised by that. The words of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar remind us of what the Bible teaches us about our words and their ability and power to hurt. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 19 tells us that when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. That's actually a very good verse to put to memory. My children will tell you over the years, I walk through the house all the time. Children, when, when many words are present, sin is not lacking. Be careful what you're saying. It's prudent to restrain your lips. Proverbs 15, 4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Do you hear that? Perverseness in your tongue, perverseness in your words, it breaks a person's spirit. And in Proverbs 16, 24 says, That gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. And so the application is simply this. Have you considered if your words to the hurting are gentle? Are they gracious? Are they sweet to their soul? Or are they like Job's friend's words, critical, callous, and confrontational? Number two, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar tried to put God in a box. They thought they had God completely figured out. They thought they had his ways completely figured out. And I would remind all of us this morning that God will never fit into man's box. God is awesome in power. God is infinite in wisdom. And God is blinding in his glory. His will and his ways surpass our understanding. And listen, when we try to put God in a box to understand our suffering, we miss the mysterious, 
glorious, majestic, hopeful design and work of God in our suffering and in the suffering of those around us. You can't put God in a box and when you do, you miss out on his work. And they didn't understand that. Number three, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar all speak of the punishment and the judgment of the wicked. But the problem with their theology is that sometimes the righteous suffer immensely in this life while the wicked are successful and prosperous and happy. But we need to remember, as I've reminded you before, that we do not experience final judgment in this life, but in the life to come where God in His sovereign goodness and grace will right all wrongs and all injustices will be made right. And what that means for us this morning is that those who are in the midst of suffering in abuse or recovering from abuse, this is not final. Your suffering doesn't have the last word. God is going to make all of those things right. Those who are suffering by being forsaken by a spouse or some other relationship. And grave injustice has been done to you and there's nothing that you can do to make it right. Be hopeful in the midst of your suffering that one day God will make it all right. And for those of us who are suffering and being singled out in our workplace because of our faith, this isn't the end. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. For you're never more like Jesus Christ. And he will right all of these sufferings. And finally, while Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar wrongly applied their counsel to Job, Friends, listen, they're correct in reminding us that death is sudden, death is certain, and death is final. That was a reality in our church family's life this past week. We had someone who was talking on the phone, FaceTiming their family in another state. And within just a few hours, their life changed forever. And then a few hours after that, eternity. Death is real. Death is sudden. And death is certain. And there is a tremendous difference. Listen to me, church. There is a tremendous difference between the death of the godly and the death of the wicked. The death of the godly is triumphant. The death of the wicked is tragic. The death of the godly ends in victory. The death of the wicked ends in defeat. And the wicked will suffer for all eternity under the wrath of God. While the godly will experience for all eternity the glories of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and the beauty of heaven for all eternity. And I want to say to all of you this morning that in these days in which we're living, you must take death seriously. It could happen at any moment. It's certain. And you need to make sure that you're ready for death. Well, we not only see Job's friends in the midst of his hopelessness, secondly, we see Job's feelings in the midst of his hopelessness. Now turn with me back to chapter 16. In these chapters, Job responds to his friends and he responds to God revealing how he's feeling at this critical moment in his life. And in chapter 16, in verses 1 through 5, he feels disgusted. In 16.2, he complains and he calls his friends miserable comforters. Do you see it? I've, had, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. And Job was saying that the more that you speak as my friends to comfort me, the more misery you add to my pain. You know anyone like that? Don't answer that question. 
In verses 3 through 5, Job assures his friends that if they were in his shoes, he would be treating them with more compassion and understanding than they were showing him. And instead of wearing them out with long speeches, he would listen intently and give them words of encouragement and help them bear their burdens. It's plain to see in these first five verses of chapter 16 that Job is completely disgusted with his friends and he cannot understand why they're treating him the way they are. In verses 6 to 17 of chapter 16, Job feels discouraged. In verses 6 through 9, he says that he's worn out by God, that he sees himself as the object of God's wrath. Do you see it? He says, if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made me desolate, all my company. And he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face He's torn me in his wrath and hated me. He's gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. And then in verses 12 to 14, he says that he feels that he is God's target and that God is slashing him and piercing him with his poisoned arrows. In verse 12, I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and he dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. Job is now calling God his enemy, his adversary. Look in verse 9 again. He's torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. And then verse 11. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. Job is telling God that God has become his enemy. He's his adversary. Now, does that shock you? Job, listen, he's angry with God. And there's something about that that strikes us, doesn't it? Haven't we all at one point or another asked, is it okay to be angry with God? And what I'm showing you in the text this morning is a man who is wrestling with his God And in part of that wrestling, Job has become angry. He is accusing God of being his enemy. Do you know that Job is not the first person in the Bible to wrestle with God in this way? Mike Mason, in his excellent book, The Gospel According to Job, has an excellent observation about the role of anger in the life of a believer. He writes... Little wonder that the great believers of the Bible have also been great arguers with God. From Jacob, who actually came to blows with the angel of the Lord, to Peter, who in Acts chapter 10 answered a divine command three times with the words, Surely not, Lord. Clearly, anger at God can be a sign of spiritual growth. Now listen carefully, or you're going to miss it. It can mean... We are outgrowing a concept of God that is no longer adequate for us. You know what he's saying? You get angry with God because the idol of God that you've made for yourself is not the God of reality. And now you've got to wrestle with the true God and not the God of your own making. And that's why you're angry. And he goes on. It could even be said that our anger is directed not at the living God himself, listen, but at our own idolatrous concept of God. That's it. Job is struggling with how to view and understand God and God's will and God's ways and God's sovereignty have moved Job away from his idolatrous picture of God. 
And Mason goes on and says, while we may not understand all that's happening in our anger, nevertheless, our anger moves us closer to God as we deal with the God who is, not the God we've made. Does it still strike you as not right? Well, let me ask you, friends, which is better To ignore your feelings and your emotions and pretend that you're not angry and live a fake Christian life? Or to be honest with how you really feel and what you're struggling with and wrestle with the God who created you? You see, when you're in suffering, there is no room for phony Christianity. It'll never last. It'll never help you through your pain. I found David Jeremiah helpful on this point. He said, why do we get angry with God? Because we love him. And we know he loves us. And when it doesn't look like he's taking care of us from our point of view, it's easy to get angry. But his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I want to warn you this morning, friends, that you must deal honestly with God and you must deal honestly with your feelings. But listen to your pastor. You don't want to live in a life of anger for very long. It's dangerous. And Job, Job didn't. Look at verses 15 to 17. After telling God he's his enemy, you know what he does? Look at these verses. Verse 15. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin, and I've laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Job, sitting on the ash heap. It's like he gets up and he comes down off the ash heap and he puts on sackcloth and he's already covered in ashes. And then he literally lays down in the dirt and puts his face in the dirt and his face is so red from his crying out to God. And he's pleading out in purity and passion, dealing with his God. He didn't sit in his anger. He wrestled with God and fell down before him in hue. Humility. What a lesson. What a lesson. In verses 18 to 22 of chapter 16, he feels desperate. In verse 18, he says that even after his death and his blood is poured out on the ground, his innocence will pour out like Abel's blood did in Genesis chapter 4. And then in verses 19 to 21, oh, we got to read these verses. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. You know what he's saying? Can't you picture him on the ground with his face in the dirt and his head red from his weeping and his crying and he says my blood's going to cry out my innocence oh and it's even better than that in heaven right now I got a witness I got a witness who's going to stand before my God and he's going to be my lawyer and he is going to argue my case with God and he's going to convince God I'm innocent He went from wanting a mediator who would put one hand on God and one hand on him and bring the parties together for reconciliation to wanting a defense attorney who would present his case on his behalf, an advocate who would argue with God. And friends, in a prophetic way, what Job is describing in these verses is what the New Testament completely and fully reveals about God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John said in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate 
with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation or the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, dear suffering friend, when you feel frustrated, when you feel forsaken, when you feel forgotten by God like Job... You can go to your advocate in heaven and know that he cares for you. And he's representing your case before the throne of God Almighty. And it's none other than Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, if that doesn't encourage you in your suffering and get you excited, you didn't read the same text I did this morning. No way you did. What a rich truth. Then in chapter 17... He's defeated. Look at what he says in verse 1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. He's emotionally drained. He cannot go any longer. In verse 3, he asks God for a pledge that would secure his innocence. And only God could provide that pledge for him. And then the rest of the chapter is like a roller coaster of emotions moving up and down after requesting God to provide a pledge for him. He accuses God of making him a byword among others. And then in verses 10 to 16, he's lost all hope. He believes that the darkness of Sheol will be his new home and that his death is imminent. And that when he dies, he'll have no more hope. His hope will be buried with him. And then finally in chapter 19, he feels deserted. Someone has observed that chapter 19 is the loneliest chapter in all of the Bible. Listen to some of the words that you'll find when you read chapter 19 carefully. Estranged, failed, forgotten, stranger, alien, Offensive, repulsive, despise, abhor, persecute. In verses 2 to 4, he says that he's tormented and broken and reproached and wronged. And he wonders how much longer he's going to have to endure all of this windy speech from his friends. In verses 4 and 5, he feels that his friends have made him worthless and helpless in the face of his suffering. That even if he had erred, it was really none of his friends' business. This was between him and God, and why can't they just leave him alone? They've forsaken him. He feels deserted by his friends. In verses 6 to 12, he feels deserted by God. Listen to some of the charges that he makes towards God. I wish I had time to read them all but I don't this morning. He says that God mistreated him. He says that God ignored him. He says that God walled him in, that God stripped his armor, his honor, that God uprooted his hope, that God attacked his comfort, and that God made him his enemy. Do you know what he's saying in these verses? My friends abandoned me, and now my God has abandoned me. And then in verses 13 to 19, he blames God for his family and his acquaintances in life abandoning him. And if you read through those verses, you'll find that Job accuses God of running off his brothers and acquaintances, his relatives, his close friends, all of his servants, his wife, all the children in the community that used to approach Job. God's pushed them all away. And then look at verse 20. Job says... What you and I have said before. Look at this. He summarizes how he feels in verse 20. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. How many times have you said that? I barely made it through by the skin of my teeth. That's what Job says. I'm barely alive in this moment. And then in verse 20, he looks at his friends and he says, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Can you hear his feelings? He's destroyed. So how should we think about this? 
Well, number one, one of the best ways to provide comfort to discouraged and hurting people is to listen not just with your ears, but with your heart. Don't listen just to what they're saying. Listen to why they are saying it. Even when they express bitter words and angry words, let them vent their feelings. Don't argue with them. Don't correct their theology. Don't try to convince them that their feelings are wrong. There will be plenty of opportunities and conversations if you stay engaged with the hurting to correct all of those things. First and foremost, listen to the why behind their pain. You'll understand them better. Number two, Job's feelings were real and they were raw. He convinced himself that he was deserted by God by his family and by his friends and by everyone who was important to him. You might be able to relate to Job. You may have expressed those same feelings that Job has expressed. But can I remind you this morning that no matter how dark and painful your suffering may be, Paul says that if you're a Christian, nothing, nothing can separate you from God. Listen to Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verses 37 to 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says nothing can separate you from God if you're a Christian and belong to him. Nothing, no matter how you feel. Your faith is not based on how you feel. It's based on the facts and the truth of the gospel. Third application, and this may be the most important. So stay with me. We must guard ourselves against the mysteries and perplexities of suffering and our feelings that go along with them. I'm going to say that again. We must guard ourselves against the mysteries and perplexities of suffering and our feelings that go along with them. Job's confusion over the way God works in the world caused him to lose hope, caused him to become angry with God, and caused him to question whether God knew what he was doing. His feelings waged an all-out war on his faith, and he was ready to give up. But the Apostle Paul gives us the right example in dealing with our feelings and our perplexities and our sufferings. Paul was perplexed at the ways of God, but Paul never let his feelings move him to despair. Listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, so he understands suffering. But we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. Yes, Paul was perplexed at God. Yes, Paul was crushed by suffering and affliction. But he never let his feelings drive him to despair. He knew God was on his side and sovereign over his life. And dear friends, I need to remind you and stress to you this morning that your feelings will move you all over the place and into all kinds of dark places. Unless you lean into God and remember what Paul remembered about him. That you can trust him in your pain. Well, you're being very gracious to me this morning. This is a lot. But we can't end without the best part. I'm sorry. So you're just going to have to hang in there another minute. All right? And but this is the shortest, by the way. Just so you know. I want you to see at the heart of our passage, chapter 19, verses 23 to 27, Job's faith in the midst of his hopelessness. He declares words of faith and hope. Look at verses 23 and 24. 
Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. And in these verses, Job is saying that he longs for his words to be written down and inscribed in a book for all future generations to read. And if that were not enough, Job longs that his words would be carved into a rock and then lead would be melted into the carving so that nobody could chip his words away and so that the weather couldn't damage his words, so that those words would be engraved in that rock forever so that everybody who came by could read them. Job wanted his innocence to be proven to everyone who would examine his evidence. And friends, does it not strike you this morning that his words were written down and we just read them? So that everyone would know. And despite the despair in his heart in verse 25, Job gives one of the most confident statements of faith ever recorded. He believed that God was his redeemer. Look at how he says it. For I know. He didn't say I think. He didn't say I hope. He didn't say it's a possibility. He said I know that my redeemer lives. And at the last He will stand upon the earth. And the redeemer that he was referring to is what the Bible describes as a kinsman redeemer. A close relative who could minister on behalf of all of his family. And Job says that on the last day when everything is said and done. He knows his redeemer God, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Will stand on the dust of the earth from which Job was created from. And he will have the last word on Job's life. And Job's right. Because he will stand on the earth on the last day. And he will have the last word period over everyone's life. And then in verse 26. He confessed that in the future when, the, when death would take his life. And his skin would decompose. He believed he'd live again. And he believed he'd have a resurrection body where in his flesh... That's how I know he thinks it's a resurrection body. In his flesh, he'll see God face to face. He'll see him. Do you see it? After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. And then in verse 27, he expresses his desire to gaze upon God in all of his glory throughout eternity. He says, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. This is the hope that Job found in the midst of his hopelessness. And notice what he says at the end of verse 27. After he describes his redeemer, my heart faints within me. He is so overwhelmed and emotionally exhausted thinking about his redeemer that he's ready to faint and to pass out. And I want you to know this morning that just as there was a redeemer for Job, there's a redeemer for you and me. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the son of God who left the glory of heaven and came to earth to live among us so that he could identify with us as a brother and as a part of the family. So that he, in his death on the cross, could become a near relative for us and purchase our freedom from sin. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. Set three, the forgiveness of our sins through his blood, according to the riches of his grace. Oh, suffering friend. You have a redeemer who who will have the last word over your life. There's hope for you. And non-Christian, I want you to know this morning that Job is personal in what he's writing. If you read these verses that I just read to you, ten times he uses the word I, me, or my in these verses. Ten times Job is very personal in knowing that God is his redeemer. 
I wonder this morning if you can be that certain and if you can be that personal. Can you say, like Job, I know my Redeemer lives. He's mine. If you can't say that today, the only hope for you is Jesus Christ. And I point you to him today. And I just simply ask you, friend, why would you not confess your sins, turn away from them, look to Christ, trust in him and what he did on the cross for you, for your forgiveness and reconciliation to the God who created you today? Why would you wait another moment? Oh, friends, please remember today. Please remember, there's hope. As long as you're still breathing, there's hope. There's hope for the hopeless. Let's pray.